In his 1998 encyclical, Fides et Ratia, on the relationship between faith and reason, Pope John Paul II considered at length the relationship between philosophy and theology, that is, the ways in which the human endeavor of philosophy, proceeding from our intellect's engagement with and orientation toward the world, relates to theology, the rational acceptance and reflection upon the divine mystery that is God, and what this God has revealed to us of himself, humanity, and creation. John Paul had this to say in particular. The relationship between theology and philosophy is best construed as a circle. Theology's source and starting point must always be the word of God revealed in history, while its final goal will be an understanding of that word, which increases with each passing generation. Yet since God's word is truth, the human search for truth, philosophy, pursued in keeping with its own rules, can only help to understand God's word better. What matters most is that the believer's reason use its powers of reflection in the search for truth which moves from the word of God towards a better understanding of it. This circular relationship with the word of God leaves philosophy enriched because reason discovers new and unsuspected horizons. The fruitfulness of this relationship is confirmed by the experience of great Christian theologians who also distinguish themselves as great philosophers, bequeathing to us writings of such high speculative value as to warrant comparison with the masters of ancient philosophy. This is true of both the fathers of the church among whom at least St. Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Augustine should be mentioned, and the medieval doctors with the great triad of St. Anselm, St. Bonaventure, and St. Thomas Aquinas. We see the same fruitful relationship between philosophy and the Word of God in the courageous research pursued by more recent thinkers, among whom I gladly mention, in a Western context, figures such as John Henry Newman, Antonio Rosmini, Jacques Maritain, Etienne Gilson, and Edith Stein. That's John Paul II. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. In the late 1920s, Edith Stein, having been Catholic for a handful of years, wrote a fictional dialogue between the philosophers Edmund Husserl and Thomas Aquinas. Stein had been a standout student of Husserl, even for a time serving as his assistant. Husserl was one of the most pivotal philosophers of the 20th century, being credited as the founder of the school of philosophy known as phenomenology. Stein studied under Husserl during her period of youthful atheism, though she never remained close to questions of God and religion. As her journey to and within Catholicism commenced and continued, the person and work of Thomas Aquinas took on real significance for Stein. So it, it was with no small amount of personal interest that Stein fashioned this encounter between two of her teachers, Husserl and Aquinas. One of the more prominent topics Stein has these two thinkers wrestle with is that of the re relationship between philosophy and theology, 
or natural and supernatural reason, as she phrases it. We might wonder in this context just how human reason relates to, receives, and ought to respond to that revealed by God. We might question whether or not God's revelation, accepted in faith, negates or runs contrary to the human exercise of reason. It might even be asked whether or not faith is an irrational phenomenon. In the course of the dialogue, and throughout that of this episode, it will be seen that Thomas Aquinas rejects this notion of faith and, re- and the relationship between the human and divine mind. What is present in Aquinas, and in the Catholic tradition in general, is a robust vision of reason and faith as being mutually beneficial, two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth, as John Paul II puts it. And of course, Stein would follow suit. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Richard Bernier from Concordia University in Montreal. Richard teaches at Concordia, as well as McGill University, from which he earned his PhD. Richard is devoted to his work with young people as a catechist and trained spiritual director in the Ignatian tradition. Be sure to check out today's show notes where you'll find a link to an essay of Richard's that focuses on this dialogue written by Stein. Here's Richard and I discussing this fascinating work of Edith Stein. Edith composed this dialogue in honor of her teacher, Edmund Husserl. Um, So both Husserl and Aquinas were uh, mentors for her in different ways. Aquinas, as a, a scholar, she had come across, of course, the Uh, uh, 13th century Dominican uh, theologian and philosopher uh, whom she came to discover a bit later in her life. Uh, She was a philosopher. She um, encountered the philosophy of Aquinas later on in her her adult life. And Husserl had been her teacher and was her mentor uh, as a a philosopher. Um, Husserl is best known as the founder of phenomenology as an approach to philosophy. So on on the occasion of his 70th birthday, um, it's customary uh, to to honor uh, professors with a collection of essays or articles in honor of their work. So Edith composed this this dialogue between her mentor Husserl and and her um, and her adopted teacher uh, Thomas Aquinas. And why is it so important for Stein to put these two particular thinkers in conversation? It seems to be uh, certainly a concern of her hers personally and not just academically it um, is so what, what's the fittingness of this combination it is exactly a very personal one for her so as an academic as a scholar of course she was fascinated as as many of us would be to put two very different thinkers in conversation with each other and see how their thought illuminates uh, each other but for her not only was Husserl a friend uh, a personal mentor someone she looked up to and knew personally um, but he was someone who had shaped her thinking, who had um, not only was the founder of phenomenology in some remote sense, but was her own, her own uh, doctor father, her own, her own, uh, uh, the one who taught her and shaped her in this way of doing philosophy and whom she in turn influenced. She was, uh, Husserl said that she was his most brilliant pupil. And um, as all academics know, your your pupils also teach you. So there was this very important personal and, and intellectual relationship between the two. Um, so it was important for her to be, to think about, to explore the thought of uh, Husserl. And then Stein, although she 
she wasn't Catholic for much of her life. Um, she was raised in a Jewish family. She considered herself an atheist uh, fairly early on in her adolescence. Um, but eventually she became Catholic. And having become Catholic as a philosopher, it was impossible for her not to to deal with the figure of Thomas Aquinas. By this point, by the 1920s and 30s, um, uh, the, the role of Aquinas in the Catholic Church had been revived partly through the, the work of Pope Leo XIII. He really encouraged a return to the writing of Aquinas as a, as a touchstone for Catholic philosophy. So for Edith Stein, as a philosopher who became Catholic, even if she ha had no further interest, she would want to explore uh, who Aquinas was. And as we see from her writing, she was, she was much taken with the depth and the insight uh, and the rigor of Thomas Aquinas. So we see in this, this dialogue these two influences these two important parts of her life coming together and and uh, and and meeting and synthesizing in in her own mind can you give us an idea of phenomenology just in general uh, I'm, I'm sure many people are familiar with the with the name but not necessarily with its method and purpose right so it would it's it's a vast and uh, varied school of uh, philosophy um, and it's been around now for um, just under a hundred years or so let's say about a hundred years Um and it's it's difficult to summarize it uh, in a in a perfect way or a complete way, but perhaps the best way to think of it um, is that it's a return to things themselves. That was often used as kind of a motto of the early phenomenologists. It's a return to things themselves. So, what does that mean? If we if we think of what philosophy can sometimes become, philosophy can sometimes become more and more remote from the the objects or the experiences of of day to day life. Um, and phenomenology was born of the experience of, of the ways in which philosophy can be alienating, the ways in which philosophy can, can become caught up in, in arguments that, that seem quite remote from our actual day-to-day -day concerns and can even seem contrary to, to, the, to the experiences that we have. It seems to ask us to believe things that aren't, aren't obviously true. So phenomenology is a return to things themselves. Um, Another phrase that the phenomenologists, early phenomenologists used, and, and many today as well, is, is to bracket, to put brackets around certain questions. In other words, we're not ruling questions out completely. We're not saying, let's not ask that question or that question cannot be asked. But rather, if we ask that question first, we won't get anywhere else. So let's put that question in brackets and, and deal with the, 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 the objects of our day-to-day -day experience, our consciousness. And that's where the word phenomenon comes in. Uh, we know the word phenomenon uh, from, you know, the scientists will explore phenomena in their lab, for example. Um, so it's the objects or the, the subjects of our, our sense experiences, the things we see, the things we feel, um, the things we hear. I was wondering, is it any surprise that some of the early phenomenologists either were Catholic, I'm thinking of Max Shaler, or become Catholic later, and I'm thinking of Stein and von Hildebrand. Right. Um, is, it, is that it's, any surprise? Um, I mean, it's not... I don't think it's surprising to me because of the, the, the ways in which phenomenology seeks a turn to the world, seeks to, seeks to turn to reality itself. Um, and of course, even for someone who isn't Catholic, who doesn't share necessarily the belief that that what the, the faith says about the world is true, can see in Catholicism this sacramental sensitivity, the, the desire 
to be anchored in the world of our experience, the desire to be anchored in the world as it is given and not as we may wish it to be or not as we may imagine it to be. And so there's the sacramental uh, ethos of Catholicism of being grounded in the world as given is very much a phenomenological ethos of, of turning to, to things themselves. And in fact, Husserl joked at one point that he should be canonized because of the number of people who became number of his students and, and readers of his work who, who became Catholic. So it's, it is it, the pattern you note is, is something that he himself, uh, something that struck Husserl himself. So philosophy is often typified as operating you know, by way of reason alone, natural reason alone, unaided by supernatural sources of, of knowledge or experience. Um, but it seems to be that, uh, you know, in your description of phenomenology, that there should be at least some sort of openness to the experience of faith. But what's the tension between faith and reason or philosophy and theology that Stein is exploring through Aquinas and Husserl? I think in in the dialogue particularly, what she um, what she zeroes in on is precisely the fact that the way Husserl approaches philosophy ought to be uh, and is open to the possibility of revelation, open to the possibility of uh, of, of of the divine or of a world beyond our experience, um, and and not just in sort of a vague sense of a world beyond our experience, but of a world that can be communicated to us. Um, so not just the, the divine in an abstract sense, but really in the sense of, of uh, for example, uh, in the sense that God can communicate with human beings. So Stein believed that uh, Husserl's phenomenology left plenty of room for uh, the experience of faith, for supernatural, uh, supernatural reason, as she calls it. Um, and in fact, it is because of that openness to the possibility of revelation that that she herself as a as a um a rigorous phenomenologist was able to come to faith so there is i think a great uh, sympathy between uh the world of faith or the world of, of revelation the notion of revelation and the kind of humility that typifies the phenomenological approach where there might be tension of course where we might see tension is precisely in the fact that revelation is not just uh, a suggestion or revelation is not just a theme or a, uh, a notion. It's really, um, as, as John Henry Newman made so clear, um, it's really a call to the attentiveness of the intellect. Revelation is a claim to be true. It's a claim to, to say true things about the world. And of course, for a phenomenologist, that's both intensely interesting and potentially intensely troubling because of course, to make a claim to make a claim that something is true means that it it has to be subjected to the same scrutiny as any other claim, and and a phenomenologist may say, well, it's not obviously true to me, so why are you saying that there is a God? Why are you saying that God is Trinity? Why are you saying these things? Um, so the tension comes precisely from the fact that faith makes uh, a claim on our intellect, which Edith is not afraid of. She recognizes that it is a robust confrontation. Uh, or a robust um, expectation that revelation uh, proposes to the intellect, uh, but she's not afraid of that. She she's confident that, with that humility, with that openness, that uh, a reasonable person, a philosopher, a, a person who is a rigorous practitioner of philosophy, can also be a person of faith. And oftentimes, faith is at least you know one sort of pop image of faith is that it's it's a blind faith, it's a blind trust, it's. 
accepting uh, realities um, as being other than appear they appear to the senses. So, how might that image differ from Stein and say Aquinas's understanding of faith as a way of knowing? That's, and that's a really important point and a, and a very perceptive one, because I think, for example, when we look at the, the criticisms leveled by some of the neo-atheist authors, some of the more popular recent authors who have been contesting religious faith, that's precisely the version of faith that they that they set up for criticism. It, it, it's, it's blind, it is uh, by nature irrational, um, and even sometimes there are defenders of faith who will... Uh, hold that up as a as a laudable quality. They'll say, "Well, what what makes faith uh, desirable or positive is that it is that it is faith without evidence or is belief without evidence." And yet, that is not the the, the classic Catholic Catholic notion of faith, and it's not uh, what Aquinas or Stein propose. For for Thomas Aquinas and for for Saint Titus Stein, faith is a it's very much a statement about the way the world is, about the way God is, and one that makes a claim on our intellect, but that doesn't provide evidence so much in the form of a, of a series of propositions that, that, that we are capable of weighing in the same way that we can weigh that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or that color requires spatial extension, or that uh, you know, the way the, the cell divides and multiplies is, is thus and so. Rather, the evidence that faith proposes uh, is evidence that, that, it is, that it is God who endorses or who has communicated that, those realities. So, we could almost, to understand faith in the mouth of Aquinas, in the mouth of Edith Stein, we could almost begin by substituting the word trust for faith. Uh, trust is a disposition we have not so much in the face of a series of facts. It's it's a disposition we have in the presence of a person. We don't we don't trust uh, a list of propositions so much as we trust a person. We put our trust in a person, and so faith is a is an act of trust that God is speaking truly of what God is like, or speaking truly of what the the, the Holy Trinity is like, or speaking truly of what what the the world will be like after our our death and and so on. Um, so. For Aquinas and for Stein, faith is a is a trust in God who is revealing. And you mentioned Newman a moment ago. It reminds me of his sense of knowing of say, you know, facts and data such as you know England being an island, and and you know I don't have any direct sense experience of that, but I sort of have this piece together understanding from various testimonies that I can trust that have built over time and that seem to have a certainty. So it's it, faith as a way of knowing doesn't seem to be that foreign from. Our everyday That's right. Sort of yeah, and and an example that comes to mind for me is um, we've 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 all encountered, uh, or I think we've we've heard about or encountered uh, the the claim that that people have never walked on the moon, and one of the reasons it's such a uh, a conspiracy theory like that is so jarring, is that in order for that that claim to be true, in order for the conspiracy theory to be true, so many other things would have to be false. There would have to be falsified photographic evidence and people who worked on the program would have to be lying and all these these hundreds and thousands of things would have to be untrue. And in a sense, what, what Newman is saying is that even if you've never seen with your eyes that, uh, let's say, from a, a high-flying airplane, you've never seen that, that England is an, an island, so many pieces of evidence converge on that conclusion that it becomes impossible to avoid it. And to some extent, although it doesn't reach the level of 
faith in the most robust sense, the nature of Catholic faith is similar to that, that it's a convergence of a convergence of experiences, a convergence of evidences, a convergence of arguments, which bring us to the threshold of faith, bring us to the point where we can say this is a reasonable, it is reasonable to believe in the incarnation, it's reasonable to believe um, in the sacraments and so on. And that that last step, the crucial step towards affirming it wholeheartedly, um, in in the classic Catholic understanding, that last step is something that only grace makes possible. Because even that very strong sense that faith is reasonable is is still just a high probability. What makes it a conviction is is the grace by which we we make that final act of trust in in God who is revealing. I mean, that's very interesting. So I'm wondering, you know, with, with, with the necessary element of grace as being that which certifies for us the various aspects of, of revelation, whether it be the Trinity or the incarnation or the virgin birth. So I'm wondering, is conviction of those sorts of things, those sorts of claims, um, only available to some namely those that have been offered the gift of grace and have accepted it. I guess I'm wondering, you know, does this sort of put some on the outside of the fullness of knowledge, or is it just, you know, necessary that in the future this person accept um, the gift of grace and therefore it's take a, these it, truths? It's one of the most puzzling aspects of the of the Catholic faith is what do we make of those who do not seem to have received the the gift of grace or the the gift of conversion or whatever, however we might phrase it, um, but I think if we if we uh, plumb the depths of the the Catholic faith, we would we will find throughout it the conviction that yes, faith is a grace that that ultimately it is not possible in the most robust sense that we were discussing earlier. It's not possible without. Uh, the grace of God, and that that grace is a gift. It cannot be bought or or merited. It is really a gift. Um, but as as radically contingent as faith is on the gift of God, uh, the Church also has the conviction that that God's fundamental uh, disposition towards every one of His creations, every one of His creatures, every single person is one of charity, is one of great uh, great. Ki- compassion and mercy. And so I think we would have to say that there's no one who is definitively uh, outside the possibility of faith by any means. In fact, everyone is called to it and we remain hopeful. Uh, There's no grounds to despair of of anyone. Um, Although quite obviously a lot of people, the majority of people don't seem to, don't don't in a visible way have that faith. But um, the Catholic faith is a constant uh, challenge to to trust in God's charity, to trust in God's mercy, even when we don't see it operative in every single instance. Um, it's also a challenge not to give up. That the story is not over yet. The the book has not been fully written. The movie's not. Uh, the film hasn't come to an end. And so we we are we are challenged never to despair, but to to accept both that faith is a grace and to be confident and hopeful that the gift remains on offer to everyone and, and how that will work out. Um, in many cases, we can't really see or imagine, but, uh, but we remain, we remain hopeful and, and confident in God's mercy. Yeah. I've just been reading recently some of Stein's spiritual writings, mm-hmm. you know, centered around the epiphany. And she does speak of uh, the visible church and the invisible church, but sort of like, you know, like you were just saying, the workings of grace are often unseen, they're hidden, their fruits are unknown even to those that 
you know, are prayerful. Um, so that kind of reminded me. Yeah. Of, and, and the epiphany is such a beautiful image of that, isn't it? Because the, the, the Magi came looking for one, they thought they were looking for one thing and they found something quite different. Um, you know, there's this study, I don't have it handy. I, I don't have the, the name of the author handy, but a, a study recently of, of what it might've meant for astrologers of the first century, what would have led them to make this pilgrimage to Bethlehem. And, and it's quite plausible that a particular astronomical phenomenon would have convinced them that a king had just been born in Judea. Um, so going and seeking the birth of a new monarch, they set out on this probably rather dangerous and certainly tiring journey. They sought one thing and found another. And that isn't that what happened to Edith Stein. She started reading the life of Teresa of Avila. It was that book that really uh, was the catalyst for her conversion. She didn't read it in order to to receive the gift of faith. She read it because she was open to truth wherever she could find it. So she sought one thing and found another. And that's perhaps, that's perhaps a good summary of what grace is. Right. It even reminds me of how, you know, in a different way, she begins her university studies in psychology and then quickly realizes that in order to be open to a greater fullness, she's got to go study with Husserl and undertake philosophy. And, um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if we could kind of segue into thinking about philosophy and its relationship with faith. Um, I'm wondering if there's an example of an element of the knowledge revealed by God that can then be employed uh, more in a more strictly philosophical sense, whether it's about the nature of God as Trinity or the reality of the incarnation and, and therefore uh, the, the sort of greater dignity of human nature. But is there an example you can yeah, think I of? think uh, a helpful example might be the the things that the the faith reveal about the the destiny of the human person so the one of the convictions of the catholic faith is that we will survive bodily death that our identity does not end with death and it's not a a belief that's exclusive to catholics by any means but it's 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 one that some some people have arrived at without necessarily religious faith and it's an, a claim that many religious traditions or religious beliefs do make that that we will survive bodily death but it's emphatically uh, a claim and an affirmation of uh, of the catholic religion and that that changes the way we see each person that we encounter right and it changes the the however far gone they may be in one way or another however abject their circumstances however young or old they may be we we have this conviction that that they will they will live forever so that is both a claim of revelation it's a it's an affirmation of revelation uh, which having been made philosophy has to deal with right a philosopher can look at that and say well i just don't believe it but that's not a that's not a really philosophical attitude it's not an open attitude it's a a phenomenologist would say here is this belief um that is that completely changes the outlook a person has on the world i have to do something with it i have to deal with this claim that that human beings survive bodily death um so it becomes a it becomes raw material for philosophy to work on. Um, it, because of the the truth claim of revelation, because revelation does claim to be telling the truth about uh, the way the world is, um, uh, a philosopher who accepts that cannot approach the world as though it's not true. Uh, the philosopher cannot simply say, um, 
yes, I believe that human beings will survive bodily death, that human beings are destined to live forever. But when I'm doing my philosophy, when I'm writing my articles, when I'm teaching my classes, I'm going to pretend that that's not true. That would be, that would be, uh, uh, trying to divide one's life into watertight compartments. So it, as you, the, the example you gave, uh, does it change the way we see the dignity of the person? That would be an example of something that I think would, uh, uh, it illuminates the significance, the the st- what's at stake in any decision we make about about ethics or about politics or about uh, you know what are we doing to take care of the the most vulnerable? What are we doing for 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 people who are um, not the movers and the shakers, but the moved and the shaken, the the uh, the refugees and the very young and the very old and the sick? What are we doing for them and with them? So that would be an example of revelation illuminating philosophy. But then philosophy in turn can illuminate revelation because the philosopher who encounters this claim that human beings survive bodily death also will ask questions about what does that mean? What does it feel like to be a person who has died? Are, are, do human beings remain conscious after death and before the resurrection, even though they don't have body? So these, these are the kinds of questions that theology can be concerned with. And so um, as much as revelation can guide and illuminate philosophy. Philosophy, in turn, can be a a, um, a great helper and a source of light to to develop the truths of the faith. And that's and that's where we we get these beautiful theological riches of our traditions. Yeah, absolutely. I'm even thinking of the idea of God as Trinity is revealed, but when developed in a more philosophical manner, can 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 provide for a robust human anthropology obviously rooted in in the claim that we're made in the image and likeness of God, but to really expound upon that, I think, requires the work of, of reason right. and reason at, at its height. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, maybe for, for yourself and in, in thinking of Stein's dialogue more particularly, are you in agreement with her regarding the relationship between faith and reason? Um, or would you maybe critique her a little bit here and there? I, fundamentally, I think uh, what Edith Stein does in the dialogue is that she uh, she's an example she's just, it's just one example although a powerful one of the the dynamism of the catholic tradition in the 1920s we can imagine um, the average catholic or the average educated catholic or catholic philosopher saying this landscape seems pretty settled um, saint thomas aquinas has long been this influential a thinker in our tradition. He's been reaffirmed by Pope Leo XIII. There's a, a growing movement of, of neo-Thomists and of the, the, the Thomist uh, revival. So it looks like Catholic philosophy is pretty stable, pretty settled, and, and that is, its outlines are pretty clear. And then all of a sudden, Edith Stein comes along, uh, a pupil of Husserl himself, and uh, and now an ardent and informed and devout and compassionate Catholic who reveals to the church that there is a new way, a new possibility of doing philosophy, not one that requires St. Thomas to be discarded, but that uh, requires us to adjust our thinking, to think about even his affirmations and claims in a new way. So in terms of that ethos, in terms of that attitude of uh, being willing to be surprised, I'm very much uh, I'm moved and, and uh, in agreement with with uh, what Saint Edith is doing in the dialogue, revealing to us that as Catholics we are we have these fundamental uh, 
reference points that aren't going to change the truths of the faith, but that even with those, we are we should be ready to constantly be pleasantly uh, surprised and perhaps sometimes uncomfortably surprised by 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 the call of truth, by the call of of, uh, uh, of philosophy to to keep thinking and to keep exploring. So the, the ethos is one that I definitely agree with. Whether whether all of the um, examples she gives or all of the ways in which she has Husserl and St. Thomas uh, um, speaking to each other, there would probably be points at which I would see things differently. I think uh, St. Edith was particularly, uh, it was especially important to her to bring these two individuals into a sympathetic dialogue with each other. But it may be that some ways of doing phenomenology, um, just like some ways of doing philosophy in other traditions, uh, can become can lack in humility, can eventually become closed off to the possibility of uh, uh, of, of revelation or to the the possibility of miracles, whatever it may be. Um, so it may be that Saint Edith was uh, was as optimistic as one can possibly be about the possibility of reconciling. Um, these two thinkers. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I recognize that uh, the, the phenomenological approach is one of, of uh, fascination, enchantment with the world as given. And so I, I, I would focus on, on you know, the deep agreement with, with, uh, with what St. Edith is up to in this dialogue. It's interesting that she's at the sort of very beginning of the, the encounter between phenomenology and a Catholic way of thinking. But presently, there are people like uh, Jean-Luc Marion and Emmanuel Falk that seem to be continuing it. So do you see in the work of present-day Catholic phenomenologists the spirit of Stein? One of the most surprising things, I'll, I'll speak for a second about St. Thomas and, and come back to St. Saint, Saint Edith. I think one of the most surprising and perhaps dispiriting things for St. Thomas uh, were he to come back and, and walk among us today would be to see over the last 800 years, how often his philosophy has become a mere rote repetition of, of propositions. Um, because he, he was a philosopher and, and he did not expect to be taken uh, purely at his word on anything. Uh, he, he did not claim himself to be revelation. He was a philosopher and a theologian. And we know that St. Thomas was mistaken about certain things as, as any of us is, is going to be on, on certain things. And so, the the Saint Thomas himself would be would expect to encounter disagreement among those who are doing philosophy in his tradition. He would be, I think, dismayed to find anyone simply parroting, as has sometimes been done with Saint Thomas, simply parroting what he wrote. Um, he would want to see people grappling and arguing and and pointing out where they think he's wrong, and he would he would counter argue. And similarly with Saint Edith, our our contemporary Catholic phenomenologists walking their own path absolutely um and i think that that's inevitable that's that's a, a sign that it's being done well or at least a sign that it's that it that it is in the right spirit right a phenomenologist uh like any philosopher is is going to propose things about the world that are controversial or that that are susceptible of being disagreed with um and that's that's the the beauty and the charm and and at some time at, at times the frustration of philosophy is that we will disagree um so i would i would think that saint edith would be um delighted to see how far the dialogue has come since it was um, a few pages of Husserl and Aquinas in, in this imaginative conversation she she proposed. She'd be excited to see how far it's come. Uh, 
um, no doubt in strong disagreement with some conclusions reached by some and in, and in uh, intense agreement with others. And no doubt she would have had her mind changed by, by some of the things she would read and she would read and hear and would probably change others' minds. So it's, it's uh, the very diversity of it, the, the eclecticism of it, the, uh, of the, the conversation today is a sign that it's, uh, that, that it is going well in the spirit of, of St. Edith, but the, the conversation is not over yet. That's right. Maybe just a final question. Um, just in general, what would you say makes Edith Stein a shaper of the Catholic imagination? One of the most moving things in any work of literature is when there's an unexpected, when, when salvation comes, when life comes from an unexpected direction, when, when help comes from an unexpected direction. And in the life of St. Edith, we see this. We see someone who was not who described herself as an atheist and suddenly there was a crack in her vision of the world, a crack that was opened first by love, by the love she saw in the lives of her friends, her Christian friends, by the hope she saw in the lives, uh, the life of Adolf Reinach's widow, her friend Adolf Reinach was killed in the war. And she was, Edith was deeply moved by the hope, by the, the optim, the hopefulness of, of his widow, um, and found herself being comforted by his widow, which which she found surprising. So she was she allowed herself to be surprised by the love of her friends. She allowed herself to be surprised by the testimony of uh, the life of Saint Teresa of Avila, which she read and which was so moving for her. So how is Saint Edith a shaper of the Catholic imagination? I think because she brought this extraordinary intellect to bear on the questions of faith. But how did she get there? She got there by being willing to be surprised. And, and we would say surprised by grace or surprised by the Holy Spirit. So perhaps for her, her message for all, all Catholics is to, uh, to bring your, keep cultivating your gifts and, and be ready to be surprised. I open this episode referencing John Paul II's Fides et Ratio. In that same encyclical, he includes the following line from St. Augustine. To believe is nothing other than to think with assent. Believers are also thinkers. In believing, they think, and in thinking, they believe. If faith does not think, it is nothing. Thanks to Richard Bernier for his time and insight into the life and thought of Edith Stein. Be sure to check out the show notes and related links for today's episode. You can find among those links an essay I recently wrote for Macrina magazine on Stein's dialogue. It's entitled Husserl and Aquinas at the After Party. This brings to a close our period of focus on Edith Stein on the Curious Catholic Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from it. During this month, we've looked at her writings on women, empathy, and the relationship between faith and reason. But as I'm sure you can tell, there is much, much more to what she said and did. I hope you continue to look into her life, turning to her as a saintly friend, and maybe even reading some of her writing or more about her. Our next four episodes will focus on St. Augustine, the great doctor of the church, who stands out in the Christian tradition, perhaps after St. Paul, as the paradigmatic convert to Christ. We'll consider his relationship with his mother, St. Monica, his rule of life written for religious men and women, his understanding and experience of the ways in which we seek our own ruin, and demise through the decay and nothingness of sin, and how his influence can be seen upon that movie, just named the best of the recent decade by the Associated Press. 
please be sure to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode. There's a lot coming in the next month, and I'm excited to share it with you. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs>